I've been faced with a, a little bit of a sobering awakening in the last little last little while in uh, in my own family with me and my four little girls, um, just sort of coming to terms with how far my family is from uh, being in the ideal place, the kind of vision that God would want our family to be. And it was, it was one of those moments that kind of comes at you and you don't really expect it. But um, one of my girls had come to me um, crying for some reason. And uh, even as I say that, I'm <laughs> becoming aware of how many of my stories I begin with that phrase, that one of my girls had come to me crying for some reason. <laughs> I feel like that's my whole life. But uh, in this case, the phrase actually, for some reason, is the, is the relevant phrase. I, they came to me crying and I wasn't even really necessarily engaged with fully listening um, as to why in this particular instance they happened to be crying. And, and I just remember my responding, you know, to my daughter and saying, you know what, it's going to be fine. Just whatever, get over it, go outside and play. And by the time you're outside, you'll have forgotten all about it. Just go. It's going to be okay. Just go. It's fine. And she kind of turned and walked away, still sort of doing those recovery sobs, you know, and and as she walked out the door to go outside, um, it suddenly dawned on me that every fathering instinct that I have, I inherited by nature and nurture from my own father, whose parenting I watched up close for a good number of years. And what suddenly hit me is that all of my father's parenting instincts were honed through the act of parenting three Boys, and now I had absorbed all those parenting instincts as a father of three girls or four girls, and I, I actually do know how many girls I have, four girls. And I was what what occurred to me in that moment in the way that I kind of brushed off my daughter's pain, essentially told her to rub dirt on it, to walk it off, and to get over herself, was that I was parenting my four girls with all of the skills that my dad used to parent three boys. And I said to Krista, unless my girls are going to spend the better part of the next 30 years in counseling, they'll already spend some, but unless they're going to spend the better part of the most of the rest of the, the, the next 30 years in counseling, I had better figure out how to parent the kids that I have rather than mimicking the way my dad parented the kids that he had. Because this is going to end badly. And in a sense, it's moments like that that lie at the very root of this Home Sweet Home series that we're going through. Should I call it Home Sweet Home? This Home Sweet Home question mark series that we're going through. It's this realization that our families in reality exist so much of the time, such an incredible distance away from God's ideal for what our families could become. And as Soph unpacked for us last week, the trick in, in learning to navigate our family relationships is learning how to, on the one hand, be okay with the reality that we live in. To be honest and raw and real as Soph was so vividly for us last week about the reality of where our families are at without shame on the one hand and without complacency on the other. 
not being you know, humiliated by our family. This is the reality that we live in. Just be okay with it. And at the same time, never being too comfortable with it, not getting complacent, not being too satisfied with it, but learning and repeatedly wanting to lean into God's ideal, learning to continue to press forward towards God's ideal for our families, especially for this series in that one critical relationship that she challenged us to identify last week. That's what this whole series is about. And now the last three weeks of this series are about what it looks like to begin to lean into, given where we're at as a family, to lean into God's ideal. Kind of asking the question of what's the secret ingredient, right? What's the magic formula? What's the silver bullet that helps our family go from where we are right now to begin the journey towards moving towards God's ideal. And of course, the answer is there's no silver bullet. There's no magic formula. There's no secret sauce to an ideal, perfect family. But this morning, I want to talk about an attitude that I have found myself doing battle against, not only in my own life, but repeatedly in my office when I sit with parents and spouses and children and siblings who are coming to talk to me about the state, the reality of their family situation, there was a particular attitude that I found myself combating over and over and over again, one that I think becomes one of the primary inhibitors in us experiencing God's ideal for our family relationships, these quirky, weird networks of relationships that we call family. And that attitude is this. It's not me, it's you. In my office, when people are in crisis or in conflict or whatever, the conversation sounds like somebody wanting to tell me all of the ways in which their partner or their spouse or their sibling or their parent or the child, whomever the other party happens to be, all of the ways in which the other party is behaving in a way that undermines their ideal for the relationship. And basically, oftentimes, begging me to intervene with their other party in order to get the other party to change their behavior in order to make the relationship what it's supposed to be. And the number of times in my office that I've had to say to people, stop talking about what the other person is doing to create the reality that you're living in. Let's start thinking about what you are doing to create the reality. What I found myself over and over again in 18 years in my own life and also in the lives of people that I've talked to about their family relationships, the attitude, that's the attitude shift that I found myself having to address. Trying to move people from, it's not me, it's you, as though the thing that's breaking our relationship right now is your inability to get your act together and conform your life to giving me what I want. And turning that on its head So that the way we process our relationships is through the lens of it's not you, it's me. Coming to the conviction that the primary thing that will help our relationships move from the reality in which we're living towards God's ideal is it's far less dependent on what the other person is doing and far more dependent on my attitudes and my actions, my behaviors in the relationship. And I feel like this is borne out biblically in that in the New Testament, especially in the book of Ephesians, the Bible identifies the central, what I believe is the core attitude that leads us towards healthy relationships. And it's described in Ephesians chapter 5, 
And I'll read verse 18 and 21 where it says this, be filled with the spirit in the following ways. And then Paul gives a whole list of ways in which people would be filled with the spirit. And the last one is this. He says, submit to each other out of respect for Christ. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit living inside of you, as the Holy Spirit does in people of faith, let the Spirit living inside of you be the controlling influence of your life. And when the Holy Spirit is the controlling influence of your life, one of the ways in which that will manifest in your life is that you will live in an attitude of submission towards other people in relationship because of your reverence, or, or worship for Christ. The logic of what Paul is saying is this. If you love and worship Jesus, you will be filled with the life and power of the Holy Spirit and the way that will manifest itself in your life is that you will live with an attitude of submission towards other people. The word submission, by the way, in Greek, it's a Greek military term that simply means to hold an inferior rank. Basically, what Paul is saying is if, you were, if your relationship was a, a military platoon, the other person in the relationship outranks you all the time. And when somebody in the military outranks you, their wish is your command. Their need becomes your marching orders. And as it said in one of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men, back in the 90s, one of Tom Cruise's earliest, in the military, we follow orders or people die. It's that simple. And I think what Ephesians affirms is that in relationships, in our families, we submit ourselves to the other person. We consider the other party to be our superior officer. And when it comes to relationships, we follow orders or relationships die. It's that simple. Paul immediately goes on to apply the concept of submission to our family relationships. In verse 22, he says, for example, wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. In verse 25, he says, as for husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Paul says, when you worship Christ, you're filled with the spirit, which becomes the controlling influence in your life that guides you into an attitude of submission in all your relationships where people are submitting to each other. For example, wives should submit to husbands and husbands should submit to wives. He goes on in chapter six, he says, as for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Children should submit to parents. As for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. Parents should submit to children. That in all of our relationships, especially our family relationships, the thing that is gonna allow us to lean towards the ideal is the spirit of mutual submission. Now, I, I need to say out loud, that doesn't mean Things like tolerating abuse. It doesn't mean things like putting up with neglect or mistreatment. It doesn't mean doing whatever the other person says. What it means is that the guiding motivation in your relational life is not what you want for you. Your guiding ideal for your relationship is not, for your relational life is not what the other person ought to be doing for you. Your guiding motivation is about what is best for the other person. Your prime directive is to serve the legitimate needs of the other person in relationship. That's how relationships begin to move from the real to the ideal. 
So when we stop living an it's not me, it's you vision of relationship where your job is to make me happy, it's when we start living an it's not you, it's me vision of relationship where my focus is on my job, which is to live my life serving your needs. That's the kind of relationships we begin to experience when we commit ourselves to being people who worship and love Jesus because that is exactly the kinds of relationships that Jesus nurtured with the people who'd become his family, his disciples. As I was thinking about this message, my mind kept drifting back to a story back in John chapter 13, where it says this, Jesus knew the father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. It's an interesting note to start this story. John goes out of, our way, out of his way to remind us that Jesus knew his cosmic significance. Jesus understood the cosmic role that he played in guiding the, all of creation towards God's ideal. Jesus knew that he had come into this world sent by God and that he was going back to God when his work was done. Jesus knew where he fit in the cosmic scale of things. So because he knew that, he got up from the table and took off his robes, his outer garments, and picking up a linen towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he was wearing. Now you have to understand, in the ancient Near East, roads were not like our roads. Roads were dirt roads. They were dusty and dry and, and dirt and it was a desert climate. And so it was as dirty and sandy and dusty as you could possibly imagine. But, but once you got into the cities, things actually got worse. Because the roads were narrow and crowded and there was no civic infrastructure for sanitation. There was no curbside garbage pickup. There was no organics waste recycling or composting. There was no infrastructure for the removal of sewage. All of that happened in the streets as people tossed buckets of their waste out the front door of their house. So these dry, dusty, narrow, crowded streets were streets that were filled with garbage and food waste and animal waste. And human waste. And that's what you walked around with in your open sandals all day, every day. Which meant that in the ancient world, washing feet became a relatively important discipline. Like for us, washing hands before dinner. Every time you entered into a home, you paused to wash your feet because you did not want to track all of the... I want to say crap and mean it literally into somebody else's house. And so you'd be given a basin and a pitcher and a towel to wash and dry your feet or in wealthier homes, you would be provided with a servant who would do that job for you. Now, the problem with providing a servant was that only certain servants could perform this task because it was so menial and disgusting. Um, in a home that had a Gentile slave, the task had to be assigned to the Gentile slave because it was a task too disgusting, too degrading, too belittling, and too demeaning for a Jewish slave to perform for another Jew. 
This was beneath certain slaves in the household to perform this task. And yet it says that Jesus, knowing where he ranked in the cosmic ranking of things, got up from a table and tied a towel around his torso like a servant would. And he went one by one around the table and washed his disciples' feet. And then it says in verse 12, after he washed his disciples' feet, he put on his robes and returned to his place at the table. And he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak correctly because I am. Um, In the ancient world, a disciple was kind of like an unpaid intern. They were really the lackey and the gopher for the rabbi. They were really indentured servants. They had to basically do whatever a rabbi said that they had to do. But the interesting thing was, a rabbi could not legally compel his disciples to wash his feet. It was too degrading. The rabbi had to wash their own feet or find a Gentile servant who would do it for them. Jesus says, you know where I rank in relation with you. You call me teacher and Lord. You know that I am your social superior. And yet he says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, something they wouldn't even do for him, then you too must wash each other's feet. Jesus says, what I've laid in front of you is a pattern of behavior that I want you to live into in your relationships with each other. I want you to consider yourselves to be each other's slaves. I want you to consider yourself to be of such a low standing, of such a low rank in the social hierarchy of things. I want you to consider yourself to be of no greater importance than the least most important slave in the entire household. I want you to consider yourself to be a slave at each other's disposal who is willing and glad to enthusiastically and proactively perform for each other the most meaningful disgusting, belittling, bemeaning, degrading forms of human service gladly and without resentment. So, I mean, this wasn't beneath Jesus. It wasn't like Jesus was waiting for somebody to wash his feet and went, oh, fine, I'll just wash everybody else's feet and make a point. No, no, no. This wasn't beneath Jesus. Jesus did this as an act of loving service. And says to his disciples, if this is who I am in relationship with you, then certainly this is who you will be in relationship with each other. He doesn't call it submission, actually. He's far more basic than that. In verse 34, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. Love each other. In exactly the same way that I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you're my disciples. When you love each other. Jesus doesn't call it submission. He just calls it love. This is what it looks like to love somebody. It means to set aside your own sense of self-importance, to set aside your ego, to set aside your agenda, to set aside every sense of what you feel you deserve from the hands of other people to lay that all aside 
in order to rank yourself beneath everybody in order to give your life to enthusiastically serving everybody else's needs ahead of yourself. And not begrudgingly or sighingly or rolling your eyes, but gladly and willingly placing everybody else's needs ahead of you, considering everyone else to be more important than you, as Paul would later say. That's what it looks like to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Think back for a second to that critical relationship that Soph asked us to identify and the season that that relationship is in. What do you feel are three needs, five needs, the other person in that relationship has that you, if you could get over yourself, would have the ability to fill? And how would that transform that relationship? How would that kind of spirit transform our families? So what does that look like? What does that mean? In really practical terms, what does it mean to live with this spirit of submission? In my mind, I couldn't get away from four suggestions that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount of what submissiveness looks like when it's lived out live and in person. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says this, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. The better translation might be to retaliate. You must not retaliate to those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on the right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. Now, uh, slapping somebody on the right cheek is quite a feat because 90% of the world is right-handed, as I am. And if I was going to slap you, I'm going to slap you on the left cheek. That's just how the mechanics of physics work. If I want to slap you with my right hand on your right cheek, the only way I can do that is with the back of my hand, which in ancient Israel was an incredible insult, as it is in many cultures around the world today, is the equivalent of being spit in your face. In fact, in ancient Israel, if I punch you in the face, you have the right to sue. If I slap you with the back of my hand, you have the right to sue for double. The injury is actually, or the insult is actually worse than the injury. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about those moments where we are being insulted and belittled and humiliated by somebody else. And what Jesus says in that moment is that what submissive, a spirit of submission looks like is to choose non-retaliation rather than getting all fired up to defend your bruised ego. You have the right to fire back, tit for tat. You know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, insult for insult. You have the right to level the scales, to even the playing field, to knock that person's feet out from underneath them by firing back with insults of your own. You have that right. Jesus says what submissiveness looks like is foregoing your rights. Because you see, retaliation is all about me and about what I deserve. I didn't deserve to be treated that way. Submission is all about you and what you deserve. 
You don't deserve to be treated the way I feel like treating you right now. Think about how just this choice to walk away instead of fire away would have, would, how that would transform our family relationships. Think about the ways in which those situations would evaporate instead of escalate if that's the choice we made, to walk away instead of fire away, to choose to not have to defend my bruised ego in the moment, to make it about what the other person needs rather than what I need. Second illustration. Jesus says, when they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, Let them have your coat as well. Jesus says there are moments, he's talking about lending money. When when Jews would lend money, especially to the poor, they they always wanted to take collateral collateral to secure the loan. I mean, this is a common practice, common enough. But among the poor, there wasn't much you could take as collateral. The most valuable thing they probably had was their cloak, their coat, the thing they wore over top that was usually a garment that was worth some money. The problem was that garment was protected by law. You could take it as collateral, but the law said you had to return it uh, at the end of the day because that cloak also served as the person's blanket and you couldn't steal a person's blanket. They need to be warm at night. So if you're going to take the cloak as collateral, you had to return it at the end of the day. But you can go pick it up in the morning and have it for collateral for another day, but then you had to go drop it off again because they needed a blanket that night. And then you go pick it up. And really, honestly, it was just a pain in the behind to take a cloak as collateral. So what people would do is skip the cloak and just take the tunic, the shirt that you wore underneath which probably as a poor person, you only had one or two of these in the entire world. And so people as collateral would literally take the shirt right off of somebody's back. They were putting the screws to you. They were taking advantage of your impoverished situation. Jesus, the question that Jesus is asking is what does submission look like when you're being taken advantage of? And he says it looks like just letting it go. I mean, think about those situations in our families where people are trying to take advantage, where siblings are fighting about inheritances, where exes are fighting about visitation hours, where um, you know, kids are fighting about seconds and leftovers at the table, where parents are fighting about the budget and who gets more money to spend on their stuff or time with the in-laws or whatever it happens to be. Jesus says in those moments when there are two competing agendas that are butting heads and one is putting the screws to the other person, Jesus says what submission looks like is the kind of attitude that says, you know, this seems really important to you. Why don't you just go ahead and take it? Jesus says, don't just give them the tunic, just give them the cloak. You know what, you seem to really want this really badly. Here, have the cloak. It's fine. And that's not to say, obviously, um, it's not to say that you're not going to address that, right? It's not to say that you're not going to sometimes say no or sometimes say that's not fair and we need to come up with a different solution. But your driving motivation is never going to be what you in selfishness want for you. Your driving motivation is always going to be what's going to be best and healthiest for everybody. 
Same with the insult. It's not like you're not going to address it if somebody's being inappropriate and insulting you. Of course you're going to address it, and Beth's going to talk about it next week. It's just that your driving motivation in how you respond is going to be about the other person and they need what they need, not you and what you need. Jesus says when you're being insulted, just walk away instead of fire away. When you're being taken advantage of, just give in. Just, you know what, this seems more important to you than it is for me. Third example. Jesus says when they force you to go one mile, go with them two. About 500 years before Jesus, the Persians ruled the world. They had a major empire, thousands of miles. And the Persians kind of invented the idea of mail service. Except without, you know, air mail or, or, or you know, ships traveling the seas or whatever. All you really had were men who would carry this mail from village to village over the course of hundreds of miles carrying these packs and so on. And it was really quite an onerous task. And so the Persians came up with this law that said, if your pack got too heavy, you could tap a citizen on the shoulder and compel them by force to carry your mail for a mile. Now, the Romans who were occupying Israel at the time of Jesus, they loved this law and they applied it to their soldiers and said any soldier can tap any citizen on the shoulder at any time and expect that citizen to carry their weapons and their supplies for a mile, a Roman mile, 1,000 paces. You had to drop whatever you were doing, interrupt your whole day to perform this task that you were being forced to do at the point of a spear. The Jews hated it. I mean, here were these occupying foreign invading armies who were oppressing their people and occupying their land. And now I had to carry your weapons and pack and become an agent of your oppression of my people. There was nothing they despised more. And so they would, by law, count off a thousand paces and go not a step more. On that thousandth pace, they would drop everything, curse, and then walk away. Jesus says, that's not the spirit of submissiveness. The spirit of submissiveness is somebody is imposing on you and forcing you to do something you hate. Don't do the bare minimum with a bad attitude. Do twice as much as they've asked and do it with a smile. Come with a spirit of enthusiasm and energy and and do what they've asked and then some and then say, how can I help? Think about those seasons where parents are imposing on their kids because they haven't realized that their kids have actually grown up. Or parents are imposing on their kids because um, they think their kids have grown up more than they have. Those seasons when siblings impose on each other and expect one of them to do all the work of taking care of mom and dad all by themselves. Situations where spouses are just piling up the expectations on the other person. All the ways that I expect that you're going to chip in around home and you know, get all the work done and so on. Jesus says in those moments when somebody's imposing on you and forcing you to do something you hate. He says the spirit of submissiveness is not to do the bare minimum with a bad attitude. The spirit of submissiveness is to do twice as much as you were asked and to do it with a smile. How would that kind of attitude absolutely transform our family relationships? If we served each other with that kind of sweetness of spirit. Final example, Jesus says, give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. 
We're back to borrowing and lending. This time, though, you're the lender. In Israel, debts were canceled every seven years. Not seven years after you incurred the debt, but every seven calendar years, the debts were canceled. So if they were canceled in 2009, they'd be canceled again in 2016 and canceled in 2023 and canceled in 2030. It was the kind of law that borrowers loved and lenders hated. Because you knew that a time was coming when the money that you had lent, that debt was going to be forgiven and you were just going to lose all that money. So if, if debts were canceled in 2009, you didn't mind lending somebody fresh money in 2009 or in 2010 or 2011, maybe even 2012. But once you got to 2013 and 2014, you start to think, well, 2016 is coming. And do I really want to lend out this money? Because the repayment period is getting kind of short. And once you get into the beginning of 2015, you're like, now we're less than 12 months from from debts being forgiven. Is this person really got what it takes? Do they have a steady job? Do they have other resources? Am I going to ever see this money again? And and what really ended up happening was that in year uh, seven, in that last year, nobody really lent anything to anybody for any reason. Everybody kind of became stingy and tight-fisted. Jesus says, that's not the attitude of submissiveness. That's not the attitude that is a you-first relationship that prioritizes the need of the other person. Jesus says, don't be stingy, ever. Be open-handed and generous with everything that you have in order to give whatever you have available to you to meet the needs of somebody who needs it more than you do. I mean, how would that transform our families? If instead of being stingy with our time and stingy with our attention and stingy with our attentiveness and stingy with our resources, if we actually just became open-handed and generous, if we actually put aside our iPads when we got home and gave each other the gift of generous amounts of time, or we set aside our stories in order to listen and to give each other generous amounts of attentiveness, to let somebody else's story be the one that gets told. What would happen if we set aside our stinginess and just with our siblings and our parents and our spouse and our kids, we just were generous and open-handed with our resources. We just were willing to give people whatever it is that they needed. If we were open and generous with our energy and our excitement and our enthusiasm and our agenda, if we just were willing to give whatever we had of ourselves to the other in order to meet their needs, that's the kind of attitude that absolutely transforms families. Where I'm not living in it's not me, it's you kind of attitude where the success of our family relationships are utterly dependent on your ability to to get your act together and to conform your life to meeting my needs. The, The success of our families depends on us living in an it's not you, it's me attitude. That the health of our relationships and our family are fundamentally dependent on my ability to get my act together and conform my life to serving whatever it is that you need. I believe that whatever your reality is, the spirit of that sort of you first submissiveness is the first step in moving towards the ideal that God has for our families. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd give us a steadfast heart. One that no 
distractions are going to be able to drag down. I pray that you'd give us unconquered hearts. Which no challenges or realities are ever going to be able to wear out. I pray that you would give us an upright heart. One which no temptation is ever going to be able to pull away from you. I pray that you would give us understanding to know you. The diligence to seek you. The wisdom to find you. And a faithfulness to embrace you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray.